story behind the story. I'm Clara Shirley Appel, and my guest today is Luis Chago Juarez, author of Realizal, a play about the history of Isolinas told as a series of vignettes, each based on interviews with actual residents. Inspired by the work of Anna DeVere Smith and the Chicano performance troupe Culture Clash, Realizal is part of a growing movement in documentary theater which seeks to center underrepresented voices. Chago Juarez, welcome to Story Behind the Story. What's up? <laughs> How you doing? So you got your start in theater through a summer workshop at El Teatro Campesino, right? Yes. Tell me about that experience. <laughs> quite a, some time ago. Just graduated from high school. This is 1990. No other number after that, just 90. And it was right after, yeah, I graduated from Alsa High School. And um, that was where my political and cultural social education was began. I, I Just in that one summer, um, I learned so much in that that one summer, and um, to learn it in a theater, you know, was was really pretty pretty impactful. So, what were the what were the kinds of things you were doing during that workshop that that gave you that education? Um, one of them was this exercise around memorizing los veinte pasos, uh, the the first twenty passages in the Mayan numerical order. Hmm. And if I can remember how I went, Imishi, Kakbal, Kanchichan, Simi, Manik, Lamat, Muluk, Ok, Chuen, Eb, Ben, Ish, Men, Sip, Chakban, Etsnap, Kawaka, How. Good I think memory. I think, that's, <laughs> I think I just did one, two, three, all the way from one to 20. So I, I, I'm, I'm sure there's probably some listeners out there that will, can correct me. <laughs> quick, would be quick to correct me. I remember the instructor breaking it down, um, breaking down like the first like one to five uh, steps and uh, connecting that back to the approach of the Teatro Chicano, Teatro Campesino, and their work based upon their history, the legacy working with the United Farm Workers in the mid-60s, and then moving from the the protest theater that they were born out of into telling more stories that were going to speak to our experience, the the history, culture, um, and our society, the society at large, the the one that Chicanos were existing and growing and, you know, surviving and thriving within. At the time, from the 60s, 70s, and then up until the 80s, it appeared that the founder of El Teatro Campesino, Luis Valdez, um, was able to make waves into the film industry. And um, for us, growing up at that time, this is, again, 1990, La, La Bamba had already been presented in 1987, and... Um, you know, to be attending this theater company that was just right over the hill from the east side of Salinas, going over to San Juan Batista. Um, it's like this great blessing and um, a great just fountain source resource for, uh, for me to connect my passion for theater with my identity. Were you interested in telling the kinds of stories that Teatro Campesino was telling before then, or did it like really shape the way that you have the written? The style, the approach, the audience, 
the message, um, in in terms of the style, like this agitprop uh, mm. form of eliminating your the formal structure of a stage, curtains, lights, sound. You don't need that. You just need an audience. And where do you go for your audience? Your audience, you live with your audience. That's your family. Your audience is right next door. You know, it's the uh, it's the neighborhood. And that's what that's what I walked away with understanding like I don't have to I don't have to chase after this idea of success where you're you have to travel far from you have to leave your home mm. leave your community yeah, be separate be separated yeah at the time it, it felt like as if you had to cut your ties at the time right <clears throat> for me um and embrace this other these these so-called professional industrial spaces where you'd have to follow uh, a form that would be directed towards a, a, an audience that is that you're going to find in a big city or that you're going to find through a film studio <laughs> or a, a film audience, whatever audience that was deemed an audience, quote, unquote, <laughs> uh, by the dominant culture. That none of that, none of that um, was, was relevant. The Teatro Campesino showed me that this is, we have that. We've had that for, you know, since, since the dawn of time, you yeah. know. And so, um, yeah, that was like a decolonizing, a decolonizing <laughs> of sorts for me, you know. Yeah. Well, and you see that in your work too, right? Like I saw this, this reading that you did, that you put on of Real Isal in a community center in Salinas. You said you graduated from Isal High School, right? Like that is very much of the community. So I guess what I am interested in hearing from you is why it's important to you to tell these kinds of stories, like the kinds of stories that you hear in Realizal and that do come out of these communities. You know, whenever you put those two words, E. Salinas, together, uh, E. Salinas because the Alisal was annexed to the city of Salinas in 1963, a community, originally a community of farm workers, a lot of them that came from the Midwest, escaping the Dust Bowl, um, many were of, of Italian descent, uh, uh, Portuguese, Filipino, African-American, and Mexican. And after it was annexed, there was, there was still this, this stigma that this community had of laborers uh, and a laborers that had their own culture and their own way of being mm. uh, that didn't vibe necessarily with the gentry from uh, Salinas proper, right? And it's it's interesting too. Like if you look at, I think it's east of Eden, John Steinbeck described Salinas as uh, somewhat of like I guess the equivalent of a white gated community, whereas Monterey was. A Mexican town, hmm. the wharf, you know, this whole th that part of Monterey. So it's, <laughs> I think I find it fascinating that um, this reversal of of identities has happened, and Isalinas 
having a, even a, a bigger stigma because of you know the last since since that annexation, so many factories have shut down. Used to be a factory town. Mm. There was a Firestone Tire Plant, Nestle's uh, Chocolate Factory, uh, Schilling's Spreckle Sugar Company, and several more. Yeah, so a lot of like industrial. A factories. lot of them. You know, my father came as a bracero. And he was fortunate enough to get a factory job in 1963. And he, he worked there till 1995. He, he was retired. I, you know, I grew up in the 70s. I was born in 72. I experienced a, a somewhat of a middle class, working class background. Like, I, you know, I, I didn't have the, I was really fortunate enough to, to not have to, um, to worry about if if we had enough money for medical, if we had enough money for food on the table, if we had enough money for rent, we had we had so much provided for us. So uh, once once but once we started seeing like all these factories were shutting down, this neighborhood our neighborhood had uh, the more and more criminal activity, and um, from that you saw this the trafficking of drugs making its way into because you know you factories shut down job opportunities drop what are you going to do you're going to supply a need or you're going to make you're going to hustle you're going to try to make some way of of survival yeah. right so you, that criminal element as a tool for survival i guess is 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 generated or it starts to grow and it becomes it has this reputation from through the 80s into the 90s. And for me, it was, I think I silently had like, I just resigned to that too. I never questioned it, mm. you know? And so it took it took some time for me to realize like, actually it, it wasn't until, hmm. I mean, there was a pride that was there and, and we had it, especially in the 90s. But again, like I wasn't challenging the narrative, you know, yeah, I wasn't, yeah, yeah. we weren't questioning like the dominant narrative that was going on. It, it wasn't a part of conversation. We weren't going to talk about it. You just kind of accepted it until like finally you get to see like examples, right? <laughs> uh, you know, like what he had mentioned, some of the, the, the some of my inspira- inspiration to see the the reclamation of narrative, to see someone being able to practice and control a narrative, you mm. know, in the form of theater, you know, and it's like, yeah, duh. <laughs> uh, a grant comes along from the California Humanities, and it's this California Stories grant. This was 2009, like 10 years ago. I, you know, it's offering this opportunity to tell, collect stories from your communities that you know, or have been silenced to some degree or whatever. And I see it and I just look, oh, this has, looks like an opportunity. Let's, let's do this. Um, and that was when I got to really learn, like, about my neighborhood. I met, I met Italian folks. I met uh, the black families, Oki, Filipinos, families, Mexicano families that all had all that had that same love for the neighborhood even my own unconscious like acceptance of that mm-hmm. dominant narrative was like it's just it evaporated it doesn't 
You know, and yeah. I here I am, like feeling like, how did I not know about you? You lived here, well, and this so you is what were you, learning for the first time. I was about learning these for stories. the first time. Yeah, because you know you don't, you just you just see your neighbor. You, just, you don't know who this person is. Right. But now right. you get to actually you're actually talking to this person, and they're actually like sharing some intimate like moments of their life and these these milestones. You know, living in the community. Mm. You know, and. I, I, I'm I'm just in it, you know. I'm I'm just I'm just an audience. I'm their audience, you know. Mm. So, what then do I do with this? You know, how do I how do I process and how do I interpret what I've just been told to me, you know? And so, I'll, and to do it with my all all my heart, right? And, yeah. and, and inviting my brother and another partner, Javier Tamayo, who's now. Um, one of the leading coordinating directors at the Alsace Center for the Fine Arts, my brother Jesus Juarez, who's a UPS driver, uh, and we had collected 40 interviews. And those, from, yeah, from those 40, we, we pulled 14 stories, and it was just the three of us. So, yeah, so tell me about how you did that, because it must be very different to write a play like this that's based on interviews, right? I mean, I'm interviewing you right now, and you talk to people in interviews, they're not always giving you, like, one clear narrative. How do you go... How do you go about like pulling that apart, deciding what to include, figuring out how to like turn them into these theatrical stories that sort of make sense in a narrative structure? How do you do that? Yeah, we had to leave out. <laughs> there, was some, <laughs> there were some stories that had to be left out. It really comes down to just saying, okay, well, how will your audience, who's the audience, right? The audience is the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. What do you do with all of this? There's all these all these moments, all this history, all this detail. And you pretty much what we felt we had to do after, after recording, transcribing, going over the notes and then trying to find like identifying where, which part of it, it's like, it helped me, it geared me up for, for the next project that we did around the Costa Plaza townhomes. Mm. Where, as an audience, or as a listener of a story, you, you record it, you write it all down, you get all the details, but you ask yourself, which were the highlights, right? Mm-hmm, what were the mm-hmm. highlights of it? And we've all, we've all played that role of storyteller when we see a movie or we saw something and now we're explaining it to, our, to whoever, right? And we're suddenly we find ourselves in performance mode. And then the car came in and it, you know, <laughs> it peeled out and the guys jumped out and they started doing, you know. Right. There's the point in the story when you get going. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like that's that's you capture. It's really focusing on the essence of those of those stories, like pulling the essence from that, celebrating these moments. Right. Mm. As best as possible. And you and you have so many stories, so you don't have that much time. And. I don't want to, I'm not here to bore anybody, you know, if I were in the audience, what would I want to see? How would I want to see this presented Mm -hmm. to me? I had to keep asking, you had to keep asking yourself that. Uh, Because there's these ideas of, well, it's, it's a documentary theater play. So you, you are committed to the word and, you know, to the detail of, of that presentation. Yeah, I could see that like Anna Devere Smith, but there's this thing called artistic license, you know, and that's where you had to pull it out. And you don't know, you're not going to know if it's a hit or not until the audience comes in, see, comes in and sees it. And especially when that 
interviewee mm. is in that audience sitting with all the other neighbors and they're watching this. And really, if you know, it's, it's going to be at that moment that you're going to see if you succeeded or not. Tell me about the name of the play, Realizal. So, Rey and Alasal, uh, uppercase A. Uh, realizar, 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 realizar. To, it's a play on words, on the Spanish word of realizando, realizar. To realize something, to see something, to recognize something. Through this narrative that was that is created and cultivated and perpetuated by people from outside of the community for that truth to be told and to be celebrated and presented by people from the community is that's this was that right we're going seen. we're going to yeah we're going to see we're going to come in and see the alisal these stories from the east side of salinas to we're going to see them we're going to experience them and that's what i feel is what's important and what's Juanita. you have to experience these stories the idea of like most the white flight the idea of white flight say in the neighborhood right um after this project it was like okay you know but there's still some okies on in this side of town there's still people here that that don't speak spanish right who aren't from mexico and um regardless of how much they probably have complained, you know, um, something is keeping them here. Hmm. And, and I'm not going to tell, I'm not going to say why, I'm not going to be the one to explain why that <laughs> is. You know, they, they, you know, I know for most of them, it's most likely economic reasons, right? But there's, there's something to save. It's something safe for that. It's something to be said for, for those Okies that are still there, the descendants that are still there, it's like, no, nah, nobody's going to tell me where to go. Nobody's going to push me out of here. Okay, cool, right? Everywhere you go, it's a, it's a pretty Mexican community. You can hear it. You can smell it. You can taste it <laughs> everywhere you go. And to some, maybe to some degree, I'm thinking that there was a, a surrendering or, or a, a respect that, that they were able to, a boundary that they were able to keep. Mm. It, I think that's special. Like I think that's a special thing. You know, maybe maybe that's just me. But it was such it was such an education for me. Like hearing, sitting through these like interviews and getting to know these people, and then seeing that I'm listening to them. You know, is it the interviews with the, the, the for that first that first project, the, the, the Ralisal project? Like I'm picking up so much, and there's so much that I can. There's so much in between the lines. There's <laughs> so much is being said in between, you know, in between. What do you mean? Can you give me an example? The way the, the racial makeup of the neighborhoods, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, well, oh, across the street was this family and over there was that family, you know, and not Spanish surnames, right? Mm-hmm. Somebody who was telling the story and how it was that it was a real oaky neighborhood. Mm. Some of them were able to say, to kind of explain, well, once, once the 80s started coming in, um, there was suddenly they all kind of appeared. They all, right? Mexican immigrants, mm. you know? They're not going to look at the leadership of that time and put the responsibility on the president, Ronald Reagan, mm-hmm. right? 
who had signed an Amnesty Act in 1986, which was like from that point on, there was a shift. There was a demographic shift, a, a significant demographic shift. It had already been kind of shifting, mm-hmm. but I, I do kind of feel like that was part of it. The organizing that the UFW had done in the early 70s, it's a cultural shift. Suddenly, there was a, a different identity. There was a different identity for the workers there. They were perceived differently now. Workers meaning the ag workers. Yeah, yeah. There was somebody there looking out for their best interest. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like the good old days. The good old days were, were changing there wasn't conversation about what a critical analysis of of the the diminish the diminishment of uh, of an okay population and then the the growth of this people Mexican weren't population. looking at the like no. structural you know, because they weren't they weren't looking at that or the the economic policies that were in place that were going to create those these conditions none of that and okay and I'm not asking or I'm not looking or like you know, <laughs> right right <laughs> not, not, I'm not in that place to do so 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 in that by leaving that out Right. Mm. I have to I have, because I'm a resident there. I grew up there so then I can I can make up my own mind around it. And that was my advantage. I guess right. you could say that was that that's what gives me a little bit of rather than some outsider coming in, you know, right. and, it's and not academic of, to you. No. Right. It's not, you know, uh, it's for, through a lived experience that I had and then and, and understanding like <laughs> the shutting down of factories, you know, uh, the policies that that created that were in place that opened up the doors, the, the Reagan policies, right, and even up until NAFTA, right, like yeah. what took place in the early '90s with the the passing of NAFTA, it, it created conditions that were harsh, harder conditions for people who worked and lived in agricultural communities in, in Mexico to survive. We saw throughout the '90s it just get get even more Mexican, mm-hmm, right, mm-hmm. so. You can, you, if you get enough, if you hear enough from as many corners as possible, and what I mean by like hearing from as many corners as possible from this place, then you will find, you will find your own story in there, Hmm. (laughs) you know, um, you will find a story. You will be able to connect your own dots. I'm, I will never be one to be like, well, (laughs) this is the final word. Like I have, (laughs) like I'm the one with the, I'm not the, I'm not the authority, right? Um, Well, and you're sort of. Breaking down that idea of authority in a lot of ways, yeah, too. Yes. Yeah. And that's, I think, this is what's, um, it's what we all have the capacity to do. And if this play, if these plays or these series of plays or the plays that we continue to cultivate out of the east side of Salinas, like, if it can inspire or if it can, like, give somebody light some, light the idea for folks to understand that everybody's story is has enough weight and enough power and it has a, enough of an audience you know i think there is a, there is an audience for every every story out there if if this project helps to provide an example of that then boom i get then that's the realization right that's yeah, the yeah, yeah. realizando yeah. right <laughs> i like that were there uh, particular stories that stood out to you in your interviews or themes that you found you kept returning to when you were trying to translate these into theater? I think this, the, the themes that came up the most were this, good, this great place to raise kids, right? Mm. A great place to, to grow up in, you know? And 
what were the elements that were in place that made this a, a good community? There was a police officer who spoke about his time growing up, and he had mentioned how the change came for him. What he saw that impacted the change was the passing of Prop 13. That was actually one of the stories that stood out to me was um, Pat, Bobby, and Petey are the characters who mm-hmm. are talking about all the courses they can take at Alicell High, which like includes aviation courses, yeah. and how all the money for that comes from taxes, and then there's this sort of contrast with news footage from Prop 13. Yes. So, yeah, sorry, tell me about that. <laughs> so, I, and I remember as a child, too, like, take, playing the trumpet in the music program at, at, at Alicell Elementary School. And suddenly the program's gone. You know, this is the early 80s into the mid 80s, early, early 80s. It was, there was no space for, for, you know, for a conversation around it. It was all right. Just, that's just the way it is. It told me like how important the village is Hmm. and how, how important the village is in, in the, in providing that space for the youth to grow. But if the village doesn't have its, is not equipped. It doesn't have those resources. It doesn't have those resources. Something's going to, there's going to be more strain press put, put on other areas. It gets to a point where you have the, the passing of Prop 13. You have the, the, the outsourcing of these factories, people losing their jobs. And then suddenly... There happens to be more drugs on the street around the time that a Just Say No campaign was being hmm. ushered. You know, it's, you're going to make your own connections. Well, and it's interesting you're talking about those things being about at the same time because you're, you're taking away the longstanding resources, the, the tax resources that feed into these great social programs and into schools and into all sorts of other things. And then you have this other program, this Just Say No program, that's like, oh, well, the responsibility for, for saying no to drugs, for getting rid of drugs, it's all personal. It's, it's not institutional. None of these things that we're taking apart matter. I don't know. That's the narrative I'm putting together in this yeah, room. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, that's how, that's how it felt. I feel like for my generation, that matter, the mattering was by the by the end of the 80s into the 90s it was like oh you begin to make up your own mind to see what really matters and for a country like ours um suddenly like you know and and obviously through your own like through your own education you start learning start reading other other texts other perspectives your critical lens starts to form. <laughs> you can't help but uh, but feel a certain way, like you've just been lied to, <laughs> mm. and did that that distrust or the dismissal of of everything that we learned. You just you just like it now. It's like wow, that was all that was all for what you know. It's like we don't we're seeing how far this is all going. Um, and what I mean by all this, this all going is this American dream. Hmm. The fact that this, this, this region, this ag region that provides 
food for, I mean, there's no other place on the planet that, that where you can grow the kind of greens that grow here. Especially, Especially. as long. Yeah. For nine months out of the year, it's going to be here. The other three months you go to Yuma. Hmm. What has kept this, what keeps this going? What has kept this going for at least the last 120 some odd years? This ag industry. Where the architects of that industry or, or the facilitators of that industry don't need to show up at city functions or city hall meetings, don't have to address what is happening to the children of their workers. Hmm. You begin to see like, oh, wow, what, why? You would imagine like, you know, the people are recognizing it now, but growing up, why was it that so many of my generation wanted to leave? Why was it that there was no room for advancement, like social economic advancement? What's your answer to that question? This is a a plantation. Hmm. We have an, the the industry here. All we all this all this all this region needs are are farm workers. And there is not a room, there's no room for, yeah, you'll get educators. Now there's, there's a, there, are, there are a lot more uh, political representatives, but it still feels like the, one, the smartest people in the room are not in the room. Mm. And what I mean by the smartest people, I mean these, these, those who have the most influence on policies in this around this valley we're not recognizing we're not able to see like how an industry like this how this economic structure is not is not sustainable enough for residents to live here in the 90s it wasn't like oh we're going to be gentrified in another 20 years but it felt like you were not a part of it you were just not you were going to be alienated from it. There is no, there is no engagement with you. There is no relationship with you. You know, and I'm not saying that you have to have the intimate relationships with every resident here, but the the dynamic of your representatives, this power structure, the industry, the economy of this of this region, what it provides for the rest of the world. Uh, my mind was blown when I was in India. And eating at a restaurant, and as I was walking out, I'm walking by the, the trash can, and I see this uh, plastic packaging of tea and tanamur and anil, and I'm like, wow, you know, some my, one of my neighbors actually picked something, and was packaged, and it ended up in somebody's mm. like, you know, digestive system over here on the other side of the planet. Mm. They touched it first. Yeah. Why do we not? take care of those hands. So I think this, uh, this begs the question, do you consider your work political? It can be interpreted as such. It's story. It's coming from my perspective. It really depends on how it's taken. How I deliver it, I want to deliver it like a story. How it's received can be political. What what happens after that? If if there's a young young a young student there that like, oh wow, I learned 
I learned that about this movement that took place at Alsa High School and their first year that they had Cinco de Mayo, they only gave them like 15 minutes, you know? And now I've, now I've seen how far it's gone, right? Like if something can, somebody can, if for whatever, however they take that in, you know, um, if it's political, it's political. Early on in Realizado, one of the characters points out that when outsiders tell stories about East Salinas, they often focus on stories about violence. And you mentioned this a little bit earlier. Um, in general, the stories you tell in Realizado have a very different focus. They're about a lot of different sort of mundane aspects of living in this community and the history of it. But there's one story toward the end about a guy who's robbed like two days in a row after he starts a new job at a fast food restaurant. So I just kind of wanted to ask you, like, tell me about that story and why did you decide to include it? Laughter is the best medicine. <laughs> Laughter heals, you know? And when these things happen to us, they could be pretty traumatic. I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure that this was a story that was told by a friend of mine uh-huh. who had a friend, <laughs> a friend of a friend. And you're revealing that you're getting to share a part of a culture, a culture that can see something as traumatic as that as funny. Now, I'm sure there's listeners out there that have a hard time with that. So much so that, you know, we come, there, there are different layers of culture, right? There's um, on, on the surface level. Or at cer- at a certain level, or a certain uh, in a certain on a certain platform, or in a certain arena, we interact in a culture where we are going to all agree upon all agree upon a reaction. Oh my God, you you got robbed two days in a row. Oh my goodness, I'm so sorry. That's that's wrong. Did they ever catch them? You know, like, mm. and what happened to you? Are you okay? Like. And, and when was this, you know? And Okay. You're from the east side of Salinas. And you're working in it like, okay, I, I'm wearing the manager's shirt. Right, because he's not actually he's the manager. He's not an actual manager. <laughs> like, I guess, all right. And then he gets robbed. He gets robbed like, oh, man, all right. You pulled a gun out on me. <laughs> okay, here you go. Like, I grew up here. Like, you don't, you're not going to say no to, you know, this. I, we get it. Happens again the next day, right? Like... Wow. All right. This is this is really happening. Okay. For him to be able to, uh, what's great is that the guy was still around and he was able to share it. Right. Say, mm-hmm. you know, tell a story. This is a this is a culture where it's like our people have been through a lot of pain, and when there's crime that's within our community or within between neighbors, and then there's been there's been crimes that have happened from the past that has has been passed down through the, those experiences have been embedded in DNA, right? Mm. There's something inside us that has that has told us that we've been here before, and it's actually not that bad, you know. We're still alive, and we still have what we have. The fact that I have I even have a job, if I'm working at Wendy's or if I'm working at wherever, you know, uh, because maybe my, my parents or my other family members are working out in the fields. There's a lot to be grateful for. 
So unconsciously, there's, I like to say that there's these coping mechanisms. Yeah. yeah. Laughter is one of them, right? And it's, a, again, back to this culture. But then you have the dominant culture, like confusing cultures that, are, that they're not a part of mm. for intelligence. Confusing culture for intelligence. And I, I believe like that was like, it demonstrated like this is, this is how we do. This is mm-hmm. how we deal. You know, if you don't find this funny, then, then you probably don't live here. So I understand that this isn't your first realizado play. Like there are a few in the series. Are you drawing from the same material? Are you exploring different themes in each of them? How, how do they relate to each other? There was one called Realizar, Your Neighbor's Story. That was in 2011. And then in 2014, there was one called Realizar, Stories from Acosta Plaza, which focused on the Laurel townhomes because the east side already has this stigma well, if the East Side already has a stigma, Acosta Plaza was even hmm. a little more, a deeper, right? After after that, we had we had done we had taken like a documentary theater approach to other projects that we that followed. One was the story of Virginia Rock Barton, who is the name a school was named after her. Found out that she was a daughter of Italian immigrants. She was one of the first female superintendents, women superintendents in the in the state of California. She started working in 1941 hmm. and became a principal within like two years in this in a in a world dominated by men, right? She was she proved herself effective and within like maybe I think maybe seven, six like I don't know how many years it was like a short span of time mm-hmm. where she became the superintendent of the school district I had stories about how she opened up a school in this labor camp and she opened it up it was, this was in the 50s she addressed the audience she addressed the, like the parents in Spanish mm. she had learned Spanish I guess in high school or in, in college this is something that we did for the Virginia Rock Barton School. It was it was a, it was a project that we we came to the school with, and we we had we spent like a, the year there in their after school program, uh, and bringing trying to bring this play up. Not trying, but at the end, towards the end, the kids did their best. The kids that were a part of the the, the program did their best to to present this life story of, of Virginia Rock Barton. And, and there's more detail to it. There's a lot more detail. She, she, she was, she, she, you know, rest in peace, Virginia Rockabar, and she passed away a year ago. Was it a year ago? Maybe this past year, I think. And um, Rally Sal is, I guess, would, I guess, would be our branding for documentary theater, hmm. specifically for stories around the neighborhood. And I feel like any for any future pieces that are gonna that we would do. Uh, would have a variety. It wouldn't. The Virginia Rock Bar and Peace does have a realizal approach, but it's focused on her. Realizal really would take multiple stories. You know the vignettes, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So I, I wanna, I wanna continue like 
you know, being able to shift focus, uh, look at different themes. Um, if we were to do one that just focused on on the Okies, right? If we were to do one that just focused on on the Filipino community, uh, the black community, uh, there is so much. <laughs> a dream of mine, a dream of mine would be to do one for a different take on the elementary schools. Mm-hmm. For the Virginia Rocker Barton piece, it was about her story. What we would like to do is go back and do research about everything from past administration, past teachers, past students that have gone on to to contribute something to the world, right? Yeah. And they even go so far as the actual land, right? What was what was there before this school was there? What was there before? I mean, there's 13 schools, 12, 13 schools in the Alice South School District. I want to know what was there. I want to <laughs> know what was at each of these schools before. And it's obviously just fields or, you know, a lot of it comes down to uh, recognizing that the tribal land, you know, of the Esalen Nation. Uh, what happened there? Where, how did the, how, what, what land deeds were, were, hmm. were, were issued out when the Spanish controlled this land, when the Mexicans controlled this land, and then when the Americans took over, right? There is documentation. <laughs> There's definitely documentation. <laughs> and even if you look at a map as early as 1910, there are some maps that are available. There are so many Spanish surnames. Hmm. Like throughout the valley, so like understanding what was what 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 was the story? What happened there? California was a bilingual state when it was founded, right? Spanish was a recognized language. The Constitution was written in both English and Spanish, and there were several state senators or, or uh, Congress uh, re- several several representatives that were monolingual Spanish speakers. Mm-hmm. You know, um, that was at the onset. That was at the beginning. What do we do with that understanding? How did we get to this place where, you know, in 1998, yeah. Proposition 227 was passed, right? English only, which was repealed a year ago or this past year. I want to understand. We want to, uh, like, how these decisions are made. And how those shifts happen. How the shifts happen, right? You know, the voting population. Well, who gets to vote? Okay, those who are citizens, right? And what, so what is all of the, everything that's attached to that, you know, like the, the, the culture of voting, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, um, how loud is our voice, you know? And how loud does it have to get till we get heard? Well, and I think that's an interesting question in the context of some some of these things that we're talking about, in part because there have been all these shifts, but in the sort of dominant narrative, <laughs> those shifts don't exist. <laughs> or sometimes the dominant narrative is saying that those shifts are going in the other direction. How do you break that down and apart for people? The more we practice commitment and to to sharing these stories because there's so many stories. There's just mm. so many stories, so many athletes, so many artists, so many just business folks. Just and and it can appear mundane. Oh yeah, like I got this store, I bought the store, or I had to do this, I had to do that. But now I'm here and 
uh, we have a home now, you know, uh, and we sell this or uh, we've been able to succeed. All these success stories, we don't celebrate them enough. And I think it's in the celebration, right? Mm. That's, that, that's, that's, where, that's where that resistance is dem- can be demonstrated. So uh, I think now is a good time to play a clip. And the clip I'm going to play is from a public reading of Real Isal from last year. Um, and it's the scene with the three Lasoya sisters. Act one, scene nine, Lasoya sisters. Are you guys ready? Yes. Oh, great, because they're here. Who's here? The interviewers. They all take a collective look out to the audience. The audience are the interviewers. Hi. Welcome, welcome. Please have a seat. It's nice to have you over. Make yourselves at home. We do this all the time. What? Talking to me? <laughs> so where should we start? Chadwick Column, <laughs> which is now called San Gerardo. It was housing for low-income folks. Farm workers. Our dad used to work for the ranchers. He supported my mom. Seven sisters. And two brothers. We drove almost a mile to the bus stop. And that bus would take us to Alice Elementary School. Virginia Rocca Barton was our principal. We couldn't speak Spanish in school in those days. They would recommend us on the bus and at school. But that didn't stop us from participating in stuff. Like sports. I was good. We were good. These were the late 40s. Right after the war. The good old days. <sighs> I remember times when I felt embarrassed because in those days, people wouldn't eat burritos. Still, that's what my mom would practice for lunch. Remember when your aunt introduced a burrito to his classmates? That's our younger brother. They had never seen a burrito before in their life. 50s schoolyard. Burrito. What's in there? Stuff. You want some? Yeah. <laughs> they move closer to the burrito. They sniff it. They take a bite, making their eyes pop from the deliciousness of the experience. Ernie eventually stopped trading his burritos and started selling them. My mom would take his orders in the morning before school. La mamá empieza a arreglar los burritos. A ver, Ernie, ¿cuántos burritos vas a querer, mijo? And he would go six. Ocho. I mean eight. Ernie setting up shop at school. Burritos, come and get them. He's rushed to him. And he made a little bit of money on the side. Fresh up the comal, people, let me supply. And now, burrito. Burritos are super Well, do you know what they're called? <laughs> we were poor, but we didn't know it. Until we were reminded. Like, whenever somebody in my class got some new clothing to wear, that was hard for me. Okay, class, settle down now. Look, boys and girls, Jill's got a new sweater. Okay, Jill, you know what we do whenever someone gets something new to wear, right? Yes, ma'am. Jill steps up to the front of the class and begins strutting up and down, showing off her new sweater as the kids begin to chant. Okay, ready? New sweater, new sweater, Jill's got a new sweater! Other kids always got new clothes. We always got the hand-me-downs. But that didn't stop me from getting on the runway. Sister 3 grabs a pair of old shoes and begins thoroughly shining them and putting them on and stepping into her class walking slowly enough so that the teacher would take notice. Oh my, well shut my eyes wide open. Oh look, boys and girls, Hopi's got new shoes. <gasps> Go on, Hopi, show off those new shoes. Ready? New shoes, new shoes, Hopi's got new shoes. Your shoes are real gas, Hopi. Thanks, I know. Will your parents let us have a sleepover at your place tonight? Sure. 
The sisters stopped suddenly and looked to sister three. Oh, yeah, my mom likes for us to match. Oh, please tell me where you shop. I just gotta tell my mom. The fabric came from a big old sack of flour. Remember the Amazon movie theater? And what they were charged for admission? Three seven-up bottle caps. I got my three. I found a whole bunch. Oh, can I have one? Hey, there's a double feature playing at the Alice Let's go! They marched to the Alice movie theater, handing in three bottle caps each and taking a seat. The sisters dance in the aisle along with the film. Jailhouse Rock finishes and the next feature starts. As the sequence runs, they get up and cheer for the cowboys. Yeah. That's right! Make those engines run! Teach them not to mess with the best! The sisters freeze. Sister 2 interrupts a time sequence. Looking back at those times, I can't help but feel guilty because I would root for the cowboys without ever realizing that, well, our mom and Indiana. Dad was too. Indios Mexicanos. So I guess that makes us all Indiana, right? That was something we didn't understand at first. At least not until I took the class in Native American Studies at Hardnell Community College, where I got to read books for the first time on their history. My history. That changed my whole perspective. It changed me. I hope I don't offend anyone when I say this, but I don't look for cowboys anymore. Thank you. I think the scene is really representative of the style and construction of stories in Reali Cell, because it, it starts by introducing these characters, these three sisters, showing off their personality and their energy, like you said. But then they start talking about Camp McCollum, which <laughs> first has a place of historical importance, but for like half a second. And then it, it very quickly becomes about the personal importance of this place to them. And before long, it's it's really just a story about them, about their families and their lives in Alisal in the 50s and their changing understanding of those everyday experiences as they grow up. So how do you write a scene like this? I mean, I imagine there was a, a huge interview. I, don't, I imagine these parts were not all strung together initially. How do you figure out how to string it together and what do you want people who see it to take away from it? It's coming back to that to that first take that I, 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 I brought up earlier. Imagine yourself like, yeah, I met, these, I met these sisters and they used to live over here and then they started going over here and they, they went to the movie theater. You know the movie theater. That's actually a movie theater. You know, it's like in that, in that excitement, in that exchange, there's this excitement. Like you're mm. discovering. It's, that, it's these, this discovery. You're panning for gold. That approach for, you know, that care that, okay, I have to, we're looking for it. We're looking for, oh, there it is. This is the gem. And you, you get enough of them and then you link it all together. Those little moments where it's like, and you notice, you pay attention when they tell these stories, how they, what comes up for them, hmm. you know? And then coming back to, you know, what's, what, what wasn't said, right? Any of these silences, any of the, those moments of where, uh, there was hesitation. They had to find different ways of wording things sometimes. And not, not just them, but like just in general. That's part of that's part of the revelation of it all. We can recognize a story as you know, as you don't have to explain how complicated it is, how complicated <laughs> things are, how complicated things get or were. The basic and simple way of doing it is by showing it. Mm-hmm. The person can explain, oh, we had a great time. We went to we went to school here and it was okay. 
really? Was it okay? <laughs> like, <laughs> you, but we couldn't speak like, Spanish even on the bus. We couldn't speak Spanish yeah. in the school. And there was another story that I picked up from a Filipino family. Didn't make the, didn't make the cut. And she was traumatized. She had grown up. She was maybe like maybe 10 years younger than, than, the, um, than the Lasoya sisters. And she spoke about a time that she saw a child who spoke only Spanish and was beaten right in front of everybody in the classroom, beaten and was crying. They were, they held on to that. The the women now are like in their 60s and 70s. And how are you just going to forget that? Like they obviously didn't, you know? So the silence reveals, (laughs) right? Um, the expression, that's all a part of the, the details to each mm. of these stories. So, you know, what do you, how do you, how do you put together a, a play like this? Is like, and you want to know, and you want to keep your audience, you always got to keep your audience in mind, especially when you're editing it, right? Cut through, just cut through the chase, get to the good parts, <laughs> right? And that's basically it. One of the things that struck me about the performance in general when I saw it, and I think you hear it again in the clip, is the enthusiasm of the actors and the quality of the actors, many of whom are high school students. So they, they have very little in the way of actual experience at this point. What made you want to work with kids? This was an opportunity that I got to collaborate with Artists, Inc. Artists, Inc. have held like a, a cohort, uh, a team of high school uh, actors and performers. And with that team specifically, there was already a dynamic. I wanted to just hand it off to them, see what, see how they would, would interpret it, right? It's that, that type of energy and their own discovery of it and how they, like, they interpret it. They interpret that, they, they take, it, they, they take owner for ownership of that story and present it in their, the best way they know how. Did they ever surprise you? <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. Oh, my goodness. Like, it's surprising, impressive, and, uh, and exciting, you know, I'm excited for them. I'm, ex- I'm hoping that they'll, you know, that they commit to, to growing in that field. Um, you know, I, <laughs> yeah, I can make a case. I can make a case for each of them to, to continue moving in that direction. Um, but, you know, shout out to, to Emily uh, Morales Ortiz, her partner, Andres, uh, the Artist Inc. team for um, their commitment to, to looking after these youngsters, this young crew of, of performers from, from Alsa High School, from the east side of Salinas. Um, they have something special. Not everybody has it. I'm, will, I'm willing to work with whoever, but I feel everybody has a part, you know, and they, they showed capacity to play as many parts as possible and for people that, the people from their own community. So in this whole process of uh, collecting these interviews and turning them into this series of plays and getting them performed and working with the community, what excited you most? Every story. What excited me most was, this is what I know about my community. And what you know about my community is wrong because it's been told by people from outside of the community. I'm not, I'm not here to like fact check, like the number of homicides, break-ins, and whatnot. But you're wrong to, to think that that's what we're all about or that's, what, mm. this, that's the only thing that's going on here because that's the only thing that they're saying or they have, they've had said, you know. 
And what I'm looking for, everything around me, like for every every news story that you you'll hear, every negative news story that you hear about the East Side, there's it's gonna be a thousand stories to counter that. Thousands positive stories, stories of struggle, survival, survival stories, <laughs> funny, <laughs> uh, sad, tragic, triumphant sh- stories that have a human complexity, right? That you can only experience, and you just can't. It can't be explained. So, Chago, what's next for you? What's next? We are producing a play written by Cristal Gonzalez called La Cortina de la Lechuga, about the housing crisis here in the region and how it's impacting our our families, our more vulnerable families, the hardest working families, farm worker families, that will be running from July 16th through the 21st. It's an actual tour. Hmm. It's going to be presented in different locations on each day. Um, One starting at Alisa High School, Soledad, Crasterville, Watsonville, the the labor council or the the labor hall, the Teamsters Hall at the corner of Market Street and Sanborn, and then the Breadbox Theater Company. So we really want to try to reach out and actually go get as close to our community, get closer to the residents uh, as much as possible, meaning like not having... Not having to just set up shop in one location and <laughs> expecting right. people to come, you know, from all over, um, but really, right, go to them. Go to them. Yeah, do our best to go to them as much as possible. Well, I think that sounds great, Chago Juarez. Thank you so much for joining me today. All right, thank you, Clara, and uh, yeah, our stories are important, and the more control that we have over our stories, the better. The play Chago is producing with Bakatun 12 about the housing crisis plays on July 16th at 7.30 p.m. at Alicell High School. Don't miss it. Next time, I'll talk to Santa Cruz author Andy Couturier about The Abundance of Less, his highly acclaimed book about life in rural Japan. I hope you'll join us. The Story Behind the Story is produced for KSQD 90.7 FM by me, Clara Shirley Appel. Our sound engineer is Linear Sammons. He also wrote our theme.